0: So good afternoon, good evening, good morning, everybody. So nice to see everybody here for our first uh, practice period seminar. And uh, I want to start again by appreciating with you, as I did on Saturday, uh, Suzuki Roshi's words. I'm going to read again what what I read on Saturday from the prologue. The Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, not all of it, but some of it. People say that practicing Zen is difficult, but there is a misunderstanding as to why. It's not difficult because it's hard to sit in the cross-legged position or to attain enlightenment. It's difficult because it is hard to keep our mind pure and our practice pure in its fundamental sense. The Zen school developed in many ways after it was established in China, but at the same time, it became more and more impure. But I do not want to talk about Chinese Zen or the history of Zen. I am interested in helping you keep your practice from becoming impure. For Zen students, the most important thing is not to be dualistic. Our original mind includes everything within itself. It is always rich and sufficient within itself. You should not lose your self-sufficient state of mind. This does not mean a closed mind, but actually an empty mind and a ready mind. If your mind is empty, it's always ready for anything, open to everything. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. If you discriminate too much, you limit yourself. If you are too demanding or too greedy, your mind is not rich and self-sufficient. If we lose our original self-sufficient mind, we will lose all precepts when your mind becomes demanding, when you long for something, you will end up violating your own precepts. Not to tell lies, not to steal, not to kill, not to be immoral, and so forth. If you keep your original mind, the precepts will keep themselves. In the beginner's mind, there is no thought, I have attained something. All self-centered thoughts, limit our vast mind. When we have no thought of achievement, no thought of self, we are true beginners. Then we can really learn something. The beginner's mind is the mind of compassion. When our mind is compassionate, it is boundless. Dogen Zenji, the founder of our school, always emphasized how important it is to resume our boundless, original mind. Then we are always true to ourselves in sympathy with all beings and we can actually practice. So here Suzuki Roshi is using all kinds of different words to try to uh, explain to us what he's talking about. He speaks about pure mind and pure practice. Then he refers to beginner's mind and especially the one that stands out to me most in this passage is self-sufficient mind. Original mind, empty mind, a mind that's ready, always open and ready for anything. So he's using lots of different phrases which are quite similar but each one slightly different from the other to try to convey to us what he's talking about. The mind of practice, the mind that we're trying to cultivate uh, during this practice period. He says that the hard part about practice is not doing Zazen for a long time, and it's not attaining enlightenment. That's not the hard part. The hard part is finding and protecting this mind. So pure mind sounds like an innocent mind. A mind that's not calculating, not cynical, not jaded. A mind that just appreciates everything Without criticizing, it kind of sounds like a child's mind. I guess children can sometimes be annoying, but I think it's pretty much impossible to hold a grudge against a child. You know, it seems like a ridiculous thing to think of holding a grudge against a child because children are so pure, it wouldn't make any sense. They aren't calculating. And even when they're sneaky, they're innocently sneaky. Maybe uh, you were like me, quite cheered up this morning after the first early zazen when we got to see uh, Pearl and Nick's two girls. That was really good. That That was the way to start the day. So Pearl has uh, Nick have a couple children and some others of you have little children or bigger children others of you have had children that were once little and maybe you have now you have grandchildren as we do so you know what I mean about the pure mind of a child It's very easy to get disgusted with people and with humanity in general the way people sometimes behave can really put you off but children are never that way they're always uplifting. It gives you faith in humanity to hang around children. Kathy and I were remembering the other day uh, when our twin sons were toddlers we were so inspired by them all the time that we had the idea that we would start a little business uh, to rent them out to people for an hour maybe or a half a day so that they people who didn't have children you know, could have the benefit of uh, the kind of inspiration that we were finding in them we, we thought this was a really great idea and would help the world also give us a little child care too but never mind about that we thought it was a really good idea we, we never did follow up on it though but we were just talking about it the other day oh and uh, speaking of Kathy, my wife, Kathy, uh, she um, pointed out to me, after hearing my Dharma talk on Saturday, that I made two mistakes in my talk. Uh, one was that I said that uh, when we were young, we did four or five Ango periods at Tasahara. And she pointed out to me that it was not four or five Ongo periods. It was four or five years that we lived there. And since they did two 90-day Ongo periods a year, it must be that we didn't do four or five. We must have done nine or ten Ongo periods. She also told me that I did not say that it was now roughly 800 years since Dogen's time. I thought I said 800 years she said, no, you, you, you said some other incorrect number. So for the record, Dogen lived from 1200 to 1253 about 800 years, whatever I said on Saturday. So back to what I was saying, pure mind, innocent mind. You know, if you're pure and innocent, people might take advantage of you. But on the other hand, if you're pure and innocent, you don't care whether they do or not. And also, you wouldn't even notice, possibly, that they took advantage of you. And you wouldn't worry about it. Beginner's mind seems quite similar to this. As he says, a fresh and open mind, you kind of receive everything that happens fresh, so you could never possibly be disappointed or shocked. You wouldn't have a lot of preconceptions. And yes, you would be ready for whatever it is that came along. It seems that the phrase used here, self-sufficient mind, maybe the phrase he uses most to describe the mind he's talking about, that seems like Suzuki Roshi's invention. I don't know exactly that they, that exact term is used in other Dharma expressions. Beginner's mind is, and other, other, these other minds are. Pure mind certainly is. But self sufficient mind, that might be Suzuki Roshi's invention. In, in Buddhism, the idea of suffering, or dukkha, is exactly the opposite, isn't it, of self sufficient mind. Suffering is exactly the opposite of sufficiency. Suffering is exactly a nagging and constant sense of insufficiency that sometimes can be you know, minor, but sometimes can be quite raging. This need for things to be otherwise than the way they are, this need for, for us to have something we don't have, or if you have something you don't like, to get rid of it. This need, uh, this sense of, you know being insufficient, not quite right, that, that, that is suffering. Being constantly, slightly or not so slightly dissatisfied, is the opposite of self-sufficient mind. The mind that discriminates. And in the passage, remember, he says, don't discriminate too much. Don't look for something. Don't be greedy or self-centered. The mind that discriminates is always a mind that is looking for something. A restless mind, constantly comparing, measuring, searching for something better or more correct, or at least different. So it is a radical thing, a self-sufficient mind. A mind that is simply satisfied with every moment as it is, accepts every moment as it is. What a liberating possibility. And what a relief, isn't it, from the mind that's always searching and seeking and grabbing. Just to be self-sufficient, just content with what is. He also says that this kind of mind he's talking about is inherently compassionate and that it naturally keeps precepts. And these things kind of go together. So, in other words, a self-sufficient mind does not mean, you know, we're, we're independent with quotes around that word independent. Independent, not caring about others, not needing others, no. The self-sufficient mind he's speaking about also cares and loves. Keeping precepts is mostly about others, isn't it? Treating self and others with respect, with fairness, with honesty, with kindness. And compassion is, as he says, boundless, literally, without boundary, unbound by ideas of self and others, so that we are always simultaneously true to ourselves, as we are in sympathy with all beings. And this is the kind of mind we're trying to keep in practice. This is our practice mind, our Zen mind, that we're trying to cultivate with Suzuki Roshi's help uh, during these days of practice period. And maybe those of you who were paying attention to our um, Series of teachings about Vasubandhu's three natures. Maybe you can hear resonance, echo of that teaching in Suzuki Ro- Zuk- Roshi's words, because I think it's all over what he's saying here. A mind free of attachments, not distorted too much by conceptualization. A mind that has mirror-like wisdom, remember we spoke about that, mirror-like wisdom, seeing things simply reflected as they are. A mind that knows that the elephant is a conjured elephant, so there's nothing to be scared of, nothing to be pushed around by, nothing to be scarred by. A complete realized mind, Vasubandhu's term that finds whatever happens sufficient and perfect the way it is, so we're not needing to look for something special or extra life the way it is. If we can really see it and appreciate it's always enough. So now, I want to read you another passage from Suzuki Roshi. This is the very next thing in the book. Posture. And I would like to read it to you uh, kind of like a guided meditation. So while I'm reading this for you, please do your best to enact in your own body exactly what Suzuki Roshi is saying in these words. And then we can talk about this. It's really important. Posture is really, really important in Zazen, and it's something that we don't really talk about a lot, so since embracing Zazen is our theme, it's a good place to start. Posture is really very important in my personal practice. When I sit in Zazen, I am always paying very close attention to my posture, always. This is what I was taught at the very beginning of my practice when I first learned how to do zazen from my teacher and so far I have never gotten beyond this point, just posture. If you think about Dogen's writings in Shobogenzo he actually is writing a lot about posture and monastic deportment. He talks about the bodily posture that you take during all activities. And even though we are living lives without the kind of regularity and and ritualistic um, framework that Dogen established for the monks at Aheji, we do have bodies. And our bodies are constantly enacting all kinds of things all day long as we walk and lift things up and put them down as we turn and move change our posture and so in this practice period I'm I'm really suggesting to you this fabulous practice of paying attention to your posture in all your activities this is an enormous thing if you if you read the mindfulness sutra it starts out with mindfulness of the body And if you think about what the Sutra is saying, it is saying that all the other aspects of the Sutra, which have to do with mindfulness of thoughts and feelings, mindfulness of the great patterns of human conduct and mind, they all come from strong mindfulness of the body. So if we sit a little bit more during this practice period, that opens up a little bit of space, and with that space we can be aware of the body all the time. So this strengthens our practice, strengthens our commitment. So I'm going to read this passage, but before I do, let me just say so that we avoid confusion and all kinds of um, uh, thoughts that are not very useful. Now, Sukiroshi is talking literally about the body. He's going to say put your left leg on top of your right thigh and your right thigh on top of your left leg and stuff like that, that probably you're not going to do. And, you know, we all have different bodies. We might have different physical ailments. And it's very likely that a lot of us cannot sit in the way specifically that Suzuki Roshi seems to be telling us to sit. But even so, don't think these words don't apply to you. They do. Take the words to heart as if they are written just for you. And as much as you can, sit as he describes. And even if your body doesn't want to do that physically, do it with your spirit. Do it with your heart. When he tells you to sit up straight and open, even if your body doesn't move, open in whatever way you can. Okay, so all that said, I'm going to read you what Suzuki Roshi, not all of it, but most of what he says about about posture. And again, please pretend this is a Suzuki Roshi's guided meditation for you. Now I would like to talk about our Zazen posture. When you sit in the full lotus position, your left foot is on your right thigh and your right foot is on your left thigh, when we cross our legs like this, even though we have a right leg and a left leg, they have become one. The position expresses the oneness of duality, not two and not one. This is the most important teaching. Not two, not one. Our body and mind are not two and not one. If you think your body and mind are two, that is wrong. If you think they're one, that's also wrong. Our body and mind are both two and one. We usually think that if something is not one, it is more than one. If it's not singular, it's plural. But in actual experience, our life is not only plural, but also singular. Each one of us is both dependent and independent. after some years, we will die. If we just think of that as the end of our life, that will be the wrong understanding. But on the other hand, if we think that we do not die, this is also wrong. We die and we do not die. That is the right understanding. Some people may say that our mind or soul exists forever, and it is only our physical body which dies. But that is not exactly right, because both mind and body have their end. But at the same time, it is also true that they both exist eternally. And even though we say mind and body, they are actually two sides of one coin. That is the right understanding. So, when we take this posture, and I would add, in whatever way we do it, when we bring our body to stillness, it symbolizes this truth and i'm adding because it's our body it's just you and your body but also it's more than that when i sit this way i do not know whether my right foot is my right or my left is my left The most important thing in taking your Zazen posture is to keep your spine straight. Your ears and shoulders should be on one line. Relax your shoulders and push up toward the ceiling with the back of your head, the top back of your head right here, and pull your chin in. When your chin is tilted up, you have no strength in your posture, you are probably dreaming. And to gain strength in your posture, press your diaphragm down toward your hara, lower abdomen. Press your diaphragm down toward your hara, your lower abdomen. This will help you maintain your physical and mental balance. When you try to keep this posture, at first you may find some difficulty breathing naturally. But when you get accustomed to it, you will be able to breathe naturally and deeply. your hands should form the cosmic mudra. Put your left hand on top of your right, the middle joints of your middle fingers together, and touch your thumbs lightly together, as if you held a piece of paper between them and your hands will make a beautiful oval. You should keep this universal mudra with great care, as if you were holding something very precious in your hands. And this mudra should be held against your body with the thumbs at about the height of your navel and hold your arms freely and easily and slightly away from your body as if you held an egg under each arm without breaking it. You should not be tilted sideways, backwards or forwards, sitting straight up, as if you are supporting the whole sky with the top of your head. This is not just form or breathing. To sit this way expresses the key point of Buddhism. It is a perfect expression of your Buddha nature. If you want a true understanding of Buddhism, you should practice this way. This form is not a means of obtaining the right state of mind. To take this posture, to sit in zazen in this way, is the purpose of our practice. And when you have this posture, you have the right state of mind. So there's no need to try to attain some special state. When you try to attain something, your mind starts wandering around somewhere else. When you don't try to attain anything, then you have your own body and mind, right here. The most important thing is to own your own physical body. If you slump, you lose yourself. Your mind is wandering around somewhere else and you're not in your body. That's not the way. We have to exist right here, right now. That's the key point. You must have your own body and mind. Everything should exist in the right place in the right way, then there's no problem. But usually without being aware of it, we try to change something other than ourselves. We try to order things outside us. But it is impossible to organize things if you yourself are not in order. When you do things in the right way, at the right time, everything else will be organized. You know, just a little note here that uh, our dear teacher who was a musician always talked about being in time, not ahead of the beat, not behind the beat, but just right on time, in time. When you are in time, everything will be organized. Suzuki Roshi again. You are the boss. When the boss is sleeping, everyone is sleeping when the boss does something right, everyone will do everything right at the right time. That's the secret of Buddhism. So always try to keep the right posture not only when you practice Zazen, but in all your activities. Take the right posture when you're driving your car, when you're reading. If you read in a slumped position, you cannot stay awake long. Try it. You will discover how important it is to keep the right posture. This is the true teaching. The teaching which is written on paper is not the true teaching. Written teaching is a kind of food for your brain. Of course, it is necessary to take some food for your brain But it is most important to be yourself by practicing the right way of life. Buddha was not interested in some metaphysical existence, but in his own body and mind here and now. And when he found himself, he found that everything that exists is Buddha. And that was his enlightenment. Enlightenment is not some good feeling or some particular state of mind. The state of mind that exists when you sit in Zazen, in the right posture, is itself always enlightenment. If you cannot be satisfied with the state of mind you have in Zazen, it means your mind is still wandering about. Our body and mind should not be wobbling or wandering about. In this posture there is no need to talk about the right state of mind. You always have the right state of mind. This is the conclusion of Buddhism. So that's Suzuki Roshi's wonderful expression. Of course, he's talking about posture, but then next thing you know, he's talking about whether you die or not and whether body and mind are one or not. Of course, because all of this is expressed in our and experienced in our Zazen posture. So, uh, I think that uh, we can go into groups of three. And, but uh, before we do that, I'm going to, because we have, uh, I think, probably lots of new people, let me just say a word uh, about how we do these groups of three. Now we We've started doing them long before Zoom. Always we did them in person, but now we do them on Zoom. Recording stopped. The idea is that, um, as Dogen says, um, to express Buddha Dharma is awakening, is the truth. So it's really important that we express ourselves. Expressing our practice is, is our practice. So this is not about, did I get the right answer? Do I get the right understanding? This is not, has nothing to do with that. This has to do with, this is my experience. This is how it is for me. And that will be something that will change over, over the months and years and decades of your practice. And that's how we learn from one another, by just listening to each other. What is this person's understanding? What is that person's understanding? And of course, you discover every person is totally different. Everybody has a different experience, a different way of understanding and approaching this. So the idea is that uh, each person will have um, three minutes and the group, somebody in the group has a watch and you can self-time and uh, maybe, I'm sure everybody in the group has their phone that has a little alarm on it you can actually set the alarm and uh, each person, it doesn't matter who goes first don't spend a lot of time figuring out who goes first, just somebody starts for three minutes you speak and the idea is that you will speak from the heart and from your, from your belly so don't just say stuff that you would ordinarily this would be a nice thing to say, the Buddhists would like to hear this no, no don't say that Try your best to say what you really and truly feel in that moment, even if it surprises you. In fact, if it surprises you, that would be great. Because you can rest assured that the other two people in the group are going to be listening to you very generously. They're not going to be thinking that you got it right or wrong or that what you said was brilliant or not brilliant, they're not going to be thinking that. And if they find themselves thinking that, they're going to go that was dumb I don't even think that. I just want to listen. All we're trying to do is listen. Non-judgmental listening. Just And, and that's a meditation practice, right? You can breathe, literally breathe as you're listening and just let what you hear come and go in your mind and also don't repeat it. We do not ever talk about what other people are saying in the group, and that way we, have, we can have safety we need, these groups must be safe so we, I'm going to assume that anybody who doesn't feel they can keep the group, group safe who feels compelled to critique what everybody says don't join the, a group go, go away and come back later so everybody who's in a group is pledging to be make every group safe and really listen to one another, and really as much as we can speak from the bottom of our hearts, the bottom of our bellies. If you have nothing to say, or you run out of things to say, then we'll just sit in silence till the time is up. Silence is good. We don't mind silence. There's no embarrassing silences in these groups. Okay? So that's, those are the ground rules. Three minutes, three minutes, three minutes, and then usually we have another three minutes at the end for anything that wants to be added or so on. And if it turns out that uh, the groups are not evenly distributed, if you have a group of two, then you have more time. If you have a group of four, for some reason, you'll have to divide the time uh, differently, less than three minutes each so that everybody can be heard more or less equally. So we, we, we fl- we're we flexible and generous with one another in these groups, okay? So, and we, we always, we almost always do these groups after every Dharma talk. Instead of everybody asking me a question, I always ask you a question. And then you always uh, express yourself based on that question. So the question I have for you tonight is, how do you practice with posture in Zazen? What has been your... And if the answer is, gee, I never thought of it before, then say that and go on from there. So that's the question. Your practice of posture in Zazen. In whatever way you want to take that. And I always say, if there's something else on your mind that's really important that you need to say that has nothing to do with that question, you're always okay to do that. Um, Don't worry about the question. Just ignore it. But that's the question that that I'm asking everyone tonight. So, ready Shafi? We'll put everybody in groups of three. And three times three times three is nine, and three more is twelve. So if there's a group of four, It works out. So I'll I'll disappear and I'll come back in about uh, 12 minutes or so, probably more like 15 to allow time to get in and out of groups. And then we'll see what happened and see if there are any, any comments or questions or maybe there's details about the practice period that somebody wants to ask. Okay, so I'm saying goodbye. Have a good time in the groups. And I'll see you in about 15 minutes.